Will you stand with me for the reading of our gospel? From the gospel according to St. Mark, beginning with verse 24 of chapter 7. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child laying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephaphatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. It's good to be with you all this morning. Today, our passages, I think, are particularly challenging. I say that, but I also realize I think I say that every Sunday. Um, I think it's just that the Bible is challenging. I think that might be, might, might be the answer there. Um, we are, uh, for those of you that, that don't know kind of how we do things around here, there's a reason why we read three passages of Scripture every week. Um, in the church, traditionally, um, there have been a calendar of Scripture readings that the church has followed, and this has happened for a long, long time, uh, where there's one from the Old Testament, one from the epistles or the letters in the New Testament, and one from the gospel. And then we stand for the reading of the gospel because it's usually the words of Jesus. And so it's as if Jesus is speaking them to us. Um, but we hear these words read, and often around here, sometimes we'll group these into series. Sometimes we will um, just read. We did a series on the Ephesians text for a while. So even though we read the Old Testament and the gospel, we kind of focused on Ephesians. Today, I want to actually weave these three passages together in a way that I hope kind of connects. Often these passages that we read are not random passages. They do kind of fit a theme and they fit the calendar. So we're headed towards Advent in December and you'll see all of these themes of the birth of Christ and the second coming of Christ come together. So we see this throughout the church calendar. But first of all, I wanna talk about our Isaiah passage that we read, the very first passage that Britain read. And this passage was a prophecy about the age to come for the Jewish people. It proclaims that God will come to those who fear him to those who desire him. When this happens, this, it says that blind eyes are opened, 
that the ears of the deaf are unstopped, that it says waters break forth into the wilderness, so into dry places, and streams go into the desert. This is what happens when God is present. In fact, it says it's this beautiful imagery, the burning sand shall become a pool. We've got a lot of that going on outside today, but, um, and the, and the thirsty ground will become springs of water. This is the world that we look to, that we look forward to, that we hope for, that we can one day see fully, that everything will be clear, right? There's not anything blocking our sight, that one day we can hear fully, which means we can hear each other fully. There's not misunderstanding, right? That we hope and long for that day. Places that are now barren and desolate in our lives are full of water and full of life. That's what we hope for. And in recognizing this, we also have to recognize that on right now, our world as we see it is on some level desolate, that we have brokenness and dryness in our world, that there is beauty to our world. It was created by God. We see God's handiwork, but also it's broken, that there are many who are blind and they're kept from seeing that our deafness to each other keeps us from hearing clearly. So we long for this day when everything is right. Everything is put back together. Now, this is not an uncommon hope. This is a hope that kind of everybody has on some level, right? Like everybody you meet wants the world to be restored and made right. We just all have different ways of going about that. Um, I guess there are maybe some in our world who are just more cynical that go, this is what it is. Life sucks and then you die right? There are some people that might embrace that, but most people that you meet have some longing for justice and hope and mercy and restoration. There are some who place their hope for that in human progress, that if we just keep achieving more, if we get these moral achievement after moral achievement, if we get a technological achievement after technological achievement, if um, our world just changes fast enough and rapidly enough, we aren't going to have problems anymore. Some have a religious hope in a future world, We meet many who have a hope in a particular kind of religion and what that religion says about the world. For some Christians, unfortunately, I think this hope can be described as an escape from this world. So if you talk to a lot of, especially the tradition I grew up in and maybe some that you grew up in, that the hope is really that we just get sucked away someday, right? (laughs) That we get out of this world. That if we get the right ticket, then we can get plucked out of this world. But I don't think that's actually the Christian hope and the biblical hope. The biblical hope is of a world made right and restored. So Christians hold to the fact, well, first of all, in this passage, um, this was unexpected in Judaism. The Christian story is unique in that Jesus entered the desert, entered the barren places. He is the one who stepped in when we were afraid, as this passage says. And in Christ, this new world that we hope for in the future, this thing that is to come has somehow broken in here and now in our place and time in Jesus. In Judaism, this was completely unexpected. This idea that one man would come in the flesh as this forerunner or this catalyst for the new world was completely unexpected. So for Christians, we hold on to the fact that in the midst of the brokenness of our world, of everything that we see around us that makes no sense, that's barren and dark and broken and difficult, that Jesus has entered that world and has even begun, even when we can't always see it, to make all things new. That's our hope. In the book, we're getting ready to read for small group. Um, The author, Rowan Williams, says this. 
That surely is one of the most extraordinary mysteries of being Christian. We are in the middle of two things that seem quite contradictory. In the middle of the heart of God, the ecstatic joy of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and in the middle of a world of threat, suffering, sin, and pain at the same time. And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus deals with suffering, not by just waving his hand or waving his wand and it's all done away with, but by truly entering suffering, by stepping into our suffering. Death is only conquered when it is first suffered in Christ. The one who heals is the one who is first rejected. So that's a little look at our Isaiah passage. The second passage that we see here is James, the book of James. And whenever brokenness exists, like Isaiah described, there are outcasts. There are those of ill repute. There are those in society who are looked down upon, who are looked at as less than. But wherever those people are in the world, we believe Jesus is there. That the scripture says Jesus is among those that are (laughs) downtrodden, right? And that's where we as the church are to join him. That's that song that we just sang together. Now, I grew up in this church where it was one of those churches. It was a, I've told you guys this before, but it was like a TV church, okay? We were on TV all the time and it was a big flashy kind of mega church. And this was one of those churches where the pastors sat on stage, okay? So everybody else is out in the congregation and the pastors sit on stage. Now, I'm not gonna completely demonize that because there's a couple ways that I've seen this. I think one is kind of beautiful and interesting and the other one, not so much. But the first one, um, in a lot of liturgical churches, if you go to these churches, um, the pastors will sit near the altar, but they actually always kind of follow the cross. So the cross goes ahead of them. They follow behind the cross. And the only reason they're sitting on the altar is they're actually presiding over the service, right? So it's this sign that God is always kind of present in the service and guiding us and leading us. But my church wasn't really like that. Um, My church, when the pastors walked in, it was kind of like a heavyweight boxing match when the, the kind of the, the champion walks in and he's got his posse and his entourage with him. Like the, the music is blasting and going and the pastor kind of starts in and all his other associate pastors are behind him and these people and everybody's eyes kind of turn and they kind of walk up and there's a swagger to the whole thing and everything. That was like the church that I grew up in. Um, yeah, it's real, it's a thing. Um, so there, this is a tradition where everything becomes a show. And I remember at this time that we'd often have civic leaders or visiting pastors or celebrities that would come to our church and they would make a big deal about reserving the seats at the front for these people. There were seats that were always reserved. And I, as a little pastor's kid at about 12 years old, I could not even think about sitting in one of those chairs because somebody special, a VIP, was getting ready to come. Another thing that was interesting about this is our senior pastor would often have my whole family sit on stage. Um, Think about if I had Lucy do that for just a second, right? If Lucy sat on stage, that would be awful. You guys wouldn't hear a word that I said, right? But but they really wanted the whole pastor's family to sit on stage. And there was one particular um, Easter Sunday where we were in a special auditorium and um, it was, you know, jam-packed. There were like, you know, 2,000 people there or something like that. And my family was sitting on stage And we're sitting there listening and all of a sudden we look out and there's a bunch of people in the audience that are just chuckling. And they're looking at us and they're just laughing. They're just chuckling. We're trying to figure out what's going on. And then you look around, you kind of, there were like rows. And so you kind of look behind and my little brother was three years old 
and he had taken off his shoes and he had done a handstand or a headstand on the chairs to where all you saw was two little white socks up in the air kind of kicking back and forth. So you kind of get what you ask for when you have somebody sit on the stage. But, um, but that's kind of what, what happened. Now, that analogy may not have a lot to do with my main point today other than um, the status of the stage and special seating always made my family a bit uncomfortable. It's always kind of a weird Thing. It drew attention to the personalities and the status of the leaders and others who were deemed as special. And I think there's a reason why that makes us uncomfortable. Because we know that this is how the world does things. The world does things by status, by celebrity status, by putting some people higher than other people. The world is always constantly, sometimes overtly, sometimes subtly, sizing people up. We even do that in social settings. We kind of size people, how important is this person? Like, are they higher or are they lower? What, am I wrong about this? We do this, right? We tend to do this. So we're hanging out some, with some friends the other day and they introduced us to someone who has some pretty significant music credentials in Nashville and had played with some people that we kind of went, oh, wow, this is kind of a big deal. And as we heard this, it was surprising. Now I've lived in Nashville long enough to know this kind of happens sometimes. I also had a situation where I went to a pastor's prayer meeting and I met a pastor who's like really, really famous. And there was kind of this sense of, oh, wow, you know, just kind of like you do with people that have a certain celebrity to them. Um, but one of the things I try to do in my life and I'm trying to do is when I'm at a party, not to gravitate to those folks first. Like not, I mean, they get plenty of attention. You don't need to feel bad for them, right? But not to go and gravitate to those folks, but to think about those who might not be gravitated towards as much, right? Like who are those people in our life? And when I do talk to those folks that have some fame or the world would say are important, I try to ask them first about their family, not about their career or what the world has viewed them as successful, or ask them about how they're doing and how their life is kind of surviving, what they're going through and all those kind of things. And instead, what, what would it look like if we gravitated to like the stay-at-home mom in our culture, the blue-collar worker, the grocery store clerk? These lives are just as interesting, okay? But our world does not always put them in those kind of categories. We want to go to the people that maybe have the most worldly kind of affirmation for what they do. And what if we ask people questions in ways that celebrated and were interested in who they are, right? That could be really, really powerful. In fact, in the early church, they had this rule that if a regular member of the congregation walked in, there was an usher who would go and greet them and then take them to their seat, okay? But if a stranger, and especially a poor stranger, walked in from the street, the bishop would leave his seat on the altar and go straight to them and take them to a seat of honor. Like that was kind of part of the rule at that time, expressing this welcome and this sense of hospitality for the stranger. James, who wrote this, this uh, passage, who was actually the brother of Jesus, tells the early church not to show favoritism. Don't show preferential treatment to those who wear fine clothes versus those who wear dirty clothes. But this isn't a moral command. This, we gotta be careful with this. This isn't just a, now guys treat people nicely passage. We, we gotta be careful. It's deeper than that. Christians are the people who extend radical hospitality to their neighbors 
because that's what Christ did for us. Our story is that deep. We don't just do it because it's a nice thing to do. We do this because Christ went to us when we were strangers and welcomed us in. That's who God is. James says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? In other words, the whole Christian faith is built on this. If we separate into groups based on our judgment of other people, we have rejected the core of who we are as the people of God, James is saying. And these last verses are ones that you might've heard a lot. It says, if someone, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. We may have heard this in the context of someone saying, good works are necessary to the Christian faith. And that's 100% true, that's right. But they are necessary because they are a natural extension about what trust in Christ is all about. He is the one who goes to the stranger. He is the one who goes to us when we are far away. So we as his people naturally then extend radical hospitality to those who are outside. Our faith as its heart, at its heart is that the true God gave himself up for us because he became nothing. He became abused. He became rejected, poor, outcast, and eventually died for us. And it was through that radical act of self-giving love that sin and death were defeated. So to say that we trust Jesus, trust him for salvation, the one who gave himself up for, for us when we were far away, and not care for the outcast is hollow. It's empty. That's not who we are as God's people. So that's that James passage, and I wanna tie all these together. But the gospel we see often, whereas the epistles are often teaching, the gospel we see Jesus living something out. He lives out these commands, he does it. So Jesus encounters a Greek woman. She's non-Jewish, and it says her, young, um, her younger daughter has an impure spirit. And she begs Jesus to drive this impure spirit or this demon out of her. And Jesus gives a response that should make us very uncomfortable, okay? I, I know a lot, I talked to a lot of pastors and theologians this week about this text, and most of them are saying, yeah, we're gonna give this our best guess, but this really makes us uncomfortable, Jesus' response here. So what does he say? Well, he says, first, first <laughs> response to her, asking about the demon being cast out, first let the children eat what they want. For it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. He's making a reference here to the children of Israel. He's saying, let the children of Israel receive from me first. And really he calls her a dog here. What is going on in this passage? This is awkward. This is uncomfortable. Why would Jesus do this? Is Jesus just being a jerk here? Is that what's happening? What's going on? Well, first of all, I think before we rush to any answers, it's okay to sit in the discomfort of something like this. It's okay to let scripture make us squirm a little bit and make us uncomfortable. Some of us are tempted to quickly explain this away. Well, Jesus didn't really mean that. He didn't really do that. Find an easy answer. But sitting, I believe sitting in the discomfort of scripture is actually what changes us. 
It's something that's other than us. And so we hear God's word and it messes with us. It shifts us, it challenges us. And there's good reason why this should mess with us. It doesn't sound like Jesus. Everything else we see from Jesus is him going to the outsider and welcoming and embracing. This is awkward, it's hard. I wanna make a few observations about Jesus's response here. First of all, um, observation number one, um, many scholars believe that Jesus is engaging in playful banter here with her, okay? So a lot of people actually think that Jesus and the woman are both kind of in on a joke. They're like play acting for the Pharisees in order to teach a lesson. And how would they possibly do that? Um, So you have to kind of picture Jesus in this scenario with a half smile on his face, okay? Always planning to heal her, but also making a point at the same time. So Jesus is used to healing Israelites, but then here she comes. These scholars also say that the word dog should actually be like um, translated puppies here. So the idea is there's people who are actually part of the family of God, and then they have to receive the food first. And then there are those who also exist in the house who then receive it. So he's kind of making this. In other words, let's make sure the people of Israel eat first. Well, I accept that. I think that's probably part of what's going on here, but it sure doesn't make it that much better to me. It still doesn't seem um, really wonderful. Okay, he's calling her a puppy instead of a dog. That still doesn't seem very kind or nice. This is a serious thing that's going on. This woman, her daughter is suffering. Jesus being playful doesn't make those issues go away. I don't know what you think about that, but it doesn't seem like it just fixes it all for us. Observation number two we need to know in this is Jesus gives the Jewish party line response. He gives the response that as a Jewish rabbi, he was supposed to give, okay? So this is what a rabbi was supposed to say to an outsider woman. We don't expect this from Jesus because we know his character and his heart, but culturally and politically, this is what he was supposed to say. At this time, a Gentile woman was not even supposed to speak to a Jewish rabbi, unfortunately. That's just the way that the culture was. So for her to speak up in this way, it was pretty shocking, Um, any rabbi would have then said this to her. I'm not here for you. I'm not here for the dogs. I'm not here for the outcasts. I am here for the children of Israel. And we also need to know Gentiles would have said something very unkind about Jewish people as well, okay? There was a significant racial and ethnic divide here. In fact, Jesus was in a very difficult political situation here. Right before this passage, Jesus has spoken about the Jewish purity laws, And he's talked about a fresh way of understanding what it means to be clean and what it means to be unclean. He says that it's not what comes from outside that makes you unclean, it's your heart. So now it's no coincidence that right after this, he does this whole thing about being clean and unclean, how being clean comes out of your heart, it's not an outside thing. And then Mark tells us he's approached by an unclean spirit in this passage. So that continues here, this clean, unclean kind of idea comes up. The Jews at the time were really protective about the purity laws. These laws provided like an invisible fence around them from sinners, but not just from sinners. They believed that if you had a deformity in your body, that you were also unclean and you must have some sin in your life. So it was a fence around you as well. And then also, especially around Gentiles who were considered unclean, people who were not Jewish. There was this, these purity laws that seemed to protect them, this invisible fence around them to keep them as insiders away from outsiders. And here Jesus enters a Gentile town with an unclean spirit in front of him. 
The third observation is it's true, Jesus is making a true statement, that Jesus came first to the children of Israel. That is true. Jesus didn't just come to be a universal problem solver, okay? He wasn't a medical missionary. That wasn't his job. He was inaugurating the kingdom of God by fulfilling Israel's story. Why? Because Israel was God's chosen people to bless the world. They weren't chosen because they were better than everyone else, quite the opposite. In fact, they messed up over and over and over again. From a moral achievement perspective, they had nothing to stand on. They were chosen in their weakness to bless the world. And Jesus stepped in and fulfilled their calling where they were weak. There's a pattern in scripture where God chooses the specific for the sake of the universal. So he chooses like a person or a specific people in order to bless the world. It's this pattern. So things get really, really, really specific, but the really specific is always for the sake of blessing everybody. That's how scripture tends to operate. The problem in the first century is that the Jewish leaders remembered the specific. They remembered they were called, they were blessed, they were set aside, they were God's chosen people, but they forgot that the whole reason they were chosen was to bless the whole world. So they got the first part and then they forgot the second part. They remembered they were special. They remembered they were blessed, they were unique, they were called to live differently, but they forgot that the whole reason for that was to bless everybody else, including the outsiders. So it was true that Jesus was to come first to the Jews, but Jesus knew, he knew all along that this was not the whole story. The calling of the Jewish people was always to bless the world. And in order to bring about blessing and healing to the world, Jesus didn't come in and say, Israel, sorry guys, you failed, now I'm gonna do this. No, he first delivered Israel, those who were called to bless the world. And you can say this, as much as we look at the Old Testament and we go, man, Israel failed over and over and over again. They succeeded in their mission to bless the world. They blessed the world through one faithful Israelite, the person of Jesus Christ. Notice after he, um, notice that so much of Jesus's ministry is not going to everybody and saying, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm, I'm the one who's come. Hey, let me tell you guys. Now tell somebody else that I'm the Messiah and I'm the Christ. But his mission was actually to stir up Israel, to challenge Israel. And part of that was reminding them of their vocation to bless the world. Now notice right after he heals the deaf man in the next section, he tells the man, don't tell anybody about this. Why? Well, right now he's focusing on a small group of people the people who he encountered in Israel. We don't want too many people to know about this, but there is a bigger story. Healing is coming. And notice, gosh, I geek out on this a little bit, but notice as he says, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, keep this specific, keep this specific. Then it says, the more he told people about that, the more the word got out, right? Ah, oh, it's just so interesting. Now this woman here is quick to respond. She is, I believe, a hero in the gospel story. In a world where women were told to be quiet, especially around a religious teacher, it took moxie for this lady to speak up in the first place. Um, she argues back with Jesus. She is not content with being cast aside and being called a dog. 
And I think Jesus knows this. She says, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. I'm not content with this answer that you're giving me. She fights back, she responds, and Jesus basically says, that's good enough for me. And he heals her daughter. Jesus is subversively reminding Israel that this whole thing has always been about the outsiders. It's always been blessing the world. In Jesus, we see two movements. First of all, Jesus steps into the place of the outcast. If you follow the trajectory of the story, Jesus is the one who becomes rejected. This woman was rejected, but Jesus himself takes on the rejection of the world. Jesus himself ultimately becomes treated as a dog. Jesus identifies with the weak, the lost, and the suffering. And the second movement is Jesus elevates the outcast. What? He called her a dog. How, how is he elevating the outcast here? Well, th think about this. This woman who wasn't even supposed to speak to a teacher teaches the lesson in this gospel. Jesus says, I'm going to let you tell the story. I'm gonna let you remind Israel of who they're called to be in the first place. This one who is not supposed to speak to a teacher becomes the teacher herself. Jesus invites the argument here. After spitting out the party line response, Jesus allows himself to be corrected. Not that in the sense that he was wrong, but that the whole system was wrong. And Jesus' response reveals that. Let's uh, just play out this idea of the specific and the universal for today. I believe that we, the church, are called to be something special, something unique in the world. I believe that with all of my heart. Um, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing today if we didn't believe that something about the gathering of the church is special. There's a lot of places that you can go and sing songs and hear inspirational talks or um, even take bread and wine if you'd like to, right? There's something about the church that we say is different and unique. There's something about this people that is unique. We shouldn't try to just say that the church of Jesus is just one valid expression but it's good for community and it's good for inspiration and nothing else. We believe the church is the primary way by which God's kingdom moves forward in the world. Believe that. And yet, that calling should never lead us to be closed off, to throw stones at others, to do all that we can to protect that uniqueness. The church is called to always fully embrace the other. That means that when you meet a neighbor who is agnostic, who has heard a lot about the church and experienced a lot about the church, and it's left them with so many questions that they just don't see validity in it. When you actually sit with their questions, instead of trying to just answer them quickly, try to debate them on how wrong they are, right? If you actually sit with them, not seeking first to defend, but first to empathize, you are communicating to them with your actions that the story of Jesus is for them too. When you love your Muslim neighbor, when you celebrate and recognize their commitment to prayer, their desire for peace, when you empathize with the marginalization that they feel in a culture like ours, the American South, you are living the fact that the story of Jesus is for them too, right? when you lift up the poor and the marginalized through serving, through listening, 
through caring, you are living the fact that the story of Jesus is for them too. I think when we do one of two things, when we either A, de-emphasize the uniqueness of Jesus and the church, or B, act like others are excluded from the story of Jesus, we miss it. Jesus became the one who was rejected, became like a dog, marginalized, so that the dogs could become children. Jesus placed himself, put himself in the place of the outsider. He was rejected for us. All of us were outcasts. Paul says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. We all feel this sense from time to time of being an outcast. I think it's human nature. I think part of the brokenness in our world is that all of us at some point feel separated or marginalized or outside from what seems like it's important and valuable. It probably depends on your personality, kind of how you experience this in different ways, but it might be like, you know, when you leave a party and, and you go, man, I feel like I didn't connect with anyone there. Is there something wrong with me? Is there something different or weird about me? When you can't seem to get your career off the ground or, or it seems like nobody likes your art, no matter what you create. When you're called that name because of the color of your skin. When you know that your boss looks at you differently because you're a woman and you feel like that changes his perspective. When you get cussed out in traffic. I know these aren't all the same. But these all give us the sense of, I'm, I'm other, I'm different, I'm outcast, I'm far away. These aches, I think, are reminders of the brokenness of our world. And Jesus experienced that brokenness and rejection at the deepest level. And because he experienced that, he says that we are children of God. The way of Jesus always involves laying our life down. It always involves self-giving, not because that's just the right thing to do, but because that's who God is, the self-giving God. Reading a story like the Syrophoenician woman and the story of the man who is mute and deaf reminds us often of the ways we are so unlike Jesus often. How often are we deaf to our neighbor, unable to listen? How often are we unable to speak words of healing and love and we can only speak words of rejection? We can't read the commands of Jesus as just a simple moral imperative. Have you ever met somebody like, I think you can easily divorce like um, Jesus and a heart and a heart for God from moral imperatives. I don't know if you've ever met somebody that works at a soup kitchen every Saturday and yet they're a really, really bitter person. Right? Like you can divorce those two things, right? It's possible. We can't read the story as just an example for us to follow. The change happens at the core of who we are. When we realize we've been called as children of God, we seek to be formed by that reality and it changes us. God's grace to us is that it is he who opens our ears and he who unties our tongue. At the end of Mark's gospel, so Mark's been telling this whole story. Like when you read one of the gospels, it's really good to see that there's an author who's actually trying to weave together a whole story in that gospel. So he's got this story of the Syrophoenician woman, which is so interesting. And it seems to like point us forward to this day when Gentiles will be brought in like fully. 
And at the end of Mark's gospel, there's a Roman centurion, non-Jewish, Gentile. And at Jesus's death, he says this amazing statement. He says, Jesus truly is the son of God. At Christ's death, what was anticipated in the story of the Syrophoenician woman came true. The king of the Jews has become the savior of the world. Just as the church James is writing to, we're called to radical hospitality. Um, I feel today just the need to, to nudge us on in radical hospitality that as we have new people that come to faith, I think so much of who we are as the people of God is going to be shaped by our hospitality to the stranger, to the outsider. Um, again, I said this last week, but when I say hospitality, sometimes we think muffins and donuts and, and coffee, which is big part of it. It's great. And I want to say thanks to Mary Beth who brought those today. Um, and everybody sets those up and all that stuff. But hospitality at its core is this self-giving love for the other. And I think our orientation as the community towards others is so critical at this time. People who are different from us, people who are other from us, who we don't know if we fully click with. We have a really close-knit community here. And I, it's my conviction that for us to grow in the way of Christ and to grow in the way that we're supposed to, God is calling us to always be a community that's turning outwards. There's some times to turn inwards, to love one another and care for each other and be the community. Those two are not mutually exclusive but it also has to be a community that's constantly thinking about those who are new and coming in, or even those who are not in the community of faith right now, right? To love those who are outsiders, to welcome them as brothers and sisters. I love this idea. I'm not gonna take long on this, but um, historically in the church, the role of the deacon is this um, position of deacon, which happens to be what I am right now. But the deacon was, is the person in the church who sends the church, so the priest is the one who does all the, the Eucharist and all these kind of things. And then the deacon comes up and does the sending, sends the community out. But the deacon is also the greeter historically who welcomes people at the door. So the deacon is the one who represents Christ in the welcoming. And the deacon is the one who represents Christ in the sending. That's what Christ does. He welcomes us and he sends us. And so the deacon is the threshold person, the person who stands on the threshold. Okay, anyway, um, my hope for sacrament is to be known for our radical hospitality, that we would see others as Jesus sees them. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your radical hospitality towards us, for loving us, for caring for us. Lord, thank you that while we were sinners, while we were far away, while we were considered by the world to be dogs, that you stepped into our place, that you became the one rejected, became the one outcast. And in that, and in your death and in your resurrection, that a new world has begun, that the calling of Israel has been fulfilled, that all are invited and all are welcome. Help us to live this kind of radical hospitality that's so different from the ways of the world. We trust you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen.